Loving our neighbour isn't just a nice idea. It's one of Jesus' most important commands. But who is our neighbour? Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and our very special guest on the show this time, and I'm delighted to have her with us, is Dr. Emily Smith, who's here to talk about her new book from Zondervan in the States called The Science of the Good Samaritan, Thinking Bigger About Loving Our Neighbours. Now, Dr. Emily is a epidemiologist and assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine Surgery at Duke University and at the Duke Global Health Institute. During the COVID pandemic, she also became known as the friendly neighbour epidemiologist through her social media outlets, which reached 10 million people. Emily, gosh, 10 million people for epidemiology. That's fabulous. I know, it's just science. Look at that. Well, I, <laughs> no. I, I had to look up the word. I have to put my hand up. I had to look up the word. What is an epidemiologist? That is all right. You are not the first who had to look it up. Do you want me to tell you? Or Yes, or yes, you, please. I I'd, I'd, li- I'd like you? to know. I'd like you to tell the audience because there's bound to be someone like me who doesn't know who an epidemiologist is or what they do. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you in your your reading of the introduction. Well, you know, before the pandemic, I think people thought that we were skin doctors like epidermis or entomology with the bugs. Um, I'm in the faith world, so ecclesiology <laughs> came up a lot as well. <laughs> it's the study of epidemics, so people kind of know what we are now. But it, it, how I like to describe it, I mean, if you go on Jeopardy and you need the good old definition, it's the distribution and determinants of a disease. So what makes a disease spread and who is at risk? Um, I see it, I'm sure we'll get into it as an equity science. And so, you know, MDs and clinicians and nurses, they're one-on-one treating one person at a time. And we're more of, of treating populations and communities at a time. Yes. Um, your background's fascinating. Um, how did you come to love science? Oh, gosh, I've always been such a science nerd. I've always loved math and science growing up. I, but it really clicked for me. I grew up in a tiny, small town, lovely, but tiny in uh, southeastern New Mexico. So we didn't really have, you know, science programs or a lot of exposure. But my height, my eighth or maybe it was ninth grade science teacher started talking about DNA. And you would have thought it was Beyonce or something he was talking about because <laughs> I was just <laughs> Lord, I don't know. It just caught me. And so I told him about it and he handed me a textbook. I didn't know it was a college textbook on DNA and genetics. And I read it all, just nerd city. So I've just loved it. Um, I also love the connection that science proved to me of helping people. You know, I grew up in the church. Uh, My parents were worship leaders at our church, a charismatic church. And so we always had a lot of missionaries in and out. And I could ask them, you know, when I was little, just about their stories. And I just wanted to do something like that, but that had science. And so I thought the only way to do that is go to medical school. Uh, so I was pre-med, got took the MCAT, God bless it, uh, got into medical school. And then when I got married, my husband's first job as a pastor was all the way across the country in South Carolina. And I had a gap year and decided you know, why not just get another degree because it would look good on med school. And that's what nerds do, don't they? <laughs> so I got, I enrolled in an MPH, MSPH, a public health degree in day one of epidemiology, just light bulbs went off of, oh, this is how I 
look at the world from an equity lens. So that's how I got into it. You must have had a good teacher. That must have been a great teacher, isn't it? That's a hallmark of a great teacher. They can hook you for life. My, he was my... love, yeah, advocacy. Yeah. He just, he saw it as, in fact, the title of the book, we're going to talk about the science of the Good Samaritan. In his day one or two of that class, he was talking about, you know, this is what epidemiology is. But he said, you know, for me, it is looking at the margins who are usually the the communities and populations most at risk, and then doing something about it. And as a person of faith, it just clicked up. Oh, that's the science. The Good Samaritan is epi. So he he was lovely to bring in the equity portion. Yes, and that leads beautifully on to my next question, which is how and why is epidemiology the story of the Good Samaritan? Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of us, even not not of the Christian faith, are familiar with this story. It's this parable in the Bible where a man came up to Jesus and asked, you know, who is my neighbor? And instead of, which is a legit Jesus move, isn't it? I will answer you with a non-answer or a story. <laughs> he tells the story of a man on the side of the road who is very hurt. Um, and two people walk by and I'm, I was intrigued too by what Jesus put in the story and what he, he left out possibly but they're religious leaders of the day. Um, and they, at the time, you know, they denote power and privilege. And then a Samaritan walks by and finally stops and helps the man, bandages him up, give, takes him to a place to recover, and then pays for all of it. And then Jesus returned to that man who asked the original question, who is my neighbor? It said, now who was the neighbor? And to me, that, well, we'll go into the nuances, the beauty of that story. But epidemiology for me is that it's quantifying the most at risk or at need, which are always on the margins and then choosing not to walk by. And for someone like me, that means linking my research to policy level type perspectives and hopefully change. Yes. How did Jesus show us neighboring? Yeah. Isn't it what is included and not included? If you go read that story, which when I reread it, through the lens of equity, things started popping out because I grew up with this story. I grew up in the church and I married a pastor. But when he showed someone stopped, um, it's someone who is unexpected, certainly at the time, and certainly not the one you would have expected to, to Jesus and who he was talking to. But then it's this holistic view of health. He took care of the man's very much acute needs, but also this you know, he wants him to thrive. He wants him to get better. And then he didn't want it to impoverish him. And my day job deals a lot with poverty. It deals a lot with poverty because of health issues. Um, so I think he's shown us neighboring in a way that becomes automatic and intrinsic because something made that man stop while the others two didn't. Um, and then for me, he redefines what it looks like to be a neighbor in terms of health by thinking through the poverty, you know, and the long-term issues. Yeah, so let's come on and look at this section of your book because I was I was greatly intrigued and I loved it. And you get into real depth on a whole lot of issues, which I would love to have time to cover in this interview if we can. Um, you, you write about racism, quite rightly, and systemic racism. And how has racism, do you think, contributed to health disparities? You're seeing this in your everyday work. How is racism contributing to the disparities you see in, in the health system and in other so-called systems? Yeah, and I write about uh, that a lot in the first section of the book because that that part is all about centering. It's that whole section is titled centering because how do we center 
our hearts so that it reacts like the Samaritan did. We're, we don't even think about it. We just intrinsically stop by whatever need that we see, and then we can do something about it. Um, and that is day-to-day stuff for sure, but it's also bigger picture stuff, like who we vote for, how we act in the world. So the racism, I, this really came out of the pandemic, where for the first time people were really seeing systemic racism, probably if they've never seen it before, um, they saw it for the first time, or it was very much highlighted for people who had seen it. In my work, I do see it every day. Uh, not only blatant racism, but also this unconscious bias that goes with it. Othering, shaming can happen. But then systematically, you know, within systems with racism being embedded. And my day job here at the Duke Global Health Institute is in incredible countries like Burundi and Somaliland, two very poor countries um, within in Africa. And if they are now, they now actually both have the number one and number two top spot for some of the worst health markers in the world, especially for mothers and babies, which is a bellwether for it's the canary in the coal mine for all the other health needs pretty much in the country. Um, but it's of no fault of their own. And I think if we don't understand the history of a place or a people, then it's easier for people to shame those countries for just being poor or shame the people for being poor. If you actually go back to 1884, this is going way back. <laughs> I take people uh, to around this horseshoe table where there are 14 countries. Uh, they are all high income countries. And in the back of that room, you, if you Google it, you can see a picture, a drawing of it, but there's a large map of Africa. And the whole point of that meeting is by the end of it, the 14 countries will basically take whatever sections of the continent that they want. It's called the Great Scramble, right? The problem is only two of those people had gone actually to the continent. No one from the continent was there, although the Sultan of Zanzibar asked to come and wasn't given entry. Um, and it was just splice and dice the country. They drew, if you look at a map from pre-1884 of Africa to post-colonization, uh, you can see that these uh, mark, these territories and the countries are drawn with just very straight lines. I mean, someone just took a pencil to it, I think. Uh, and it, what it did is it cut up the country. It cut up 10% of the natural ethnic groups or countries or people groups. And those sections that were cut up in modern days have a 25% higher risk of not only civil conflict, but high rates of poverty. Now, Burundi, Tanzania, where I also work, and Somaliland are three of those countries that were sliced and diced between two different um, groups. And I mean, we all know the history of colonization that could take an entire podcast. The point I wanted to Several make, probably. Though, oh, for sure. Yeah. And I go into detail in the book of a little bit more of that history. But the point that I wanted to make, especially for a country like Somaliland, is it is of no fault of their own that poverty is so prevalent. And that also goes hand in hand with health because healthcare capacity has not been given in a lot of these areas as well. We see that here in the States too. We see it with the pulse oximeter with who that was calibrated to and who developed it. So if you fast forward to the pandemic, the African-American friends, they had 
really poor readings of their blood oxygen levels because it was not calibrated to darker skin when it was made back, you know, back in the day. How is discrimination affecting provider care during pregnancy? Mm, yeah. It, you mean systemic racism? Mm. Yeah, and othering. Yeah, so I tell the story of when I had my second child, um, I, at the very end, about a month out of having, or when he was supposed to be due, I started having these weird, uh, seeing stars, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but my provider said, you need to actually come in to, for observation. And so I did, and it ended up being severe preeclampsia. Um, we had to have him very quickly. And then he was in the NICU and I was in the hospital multiple times with stroke level type blood pressure with, I mean, I know risk factors, so it's not like warning bells were going off uh, prior to it. And, but we had the insurance, we lived close to the hospital. We had family around to be able to help. I didn't have to walk to care. You know, both of, both him and I have lived and recovered just fine from that. I had insurance for even the medication post um, blood pressure medication. If you look in Burundi there, if it was an equivalent mother, you know, who had a child at home, high blood pressure, same story, most likely she would have to walk to a hospital. Um, and there's a, that's a very high risk, that condition of both her and her child not making it. And it's of no fault of her own. It's the system and the structures that are around her or more importantly are, are not. So mm. I think that helps us neighbor once we understand the systems around people, even here in the States. How did you become involved in projects relating to children's surgery around the world and, and come to meet in the General Assembly Hall of the United Nations, indeed? Yeah, that I still pinch myself to being able to do that in my lifetime, for sure. Um, I During my PhD work at UNC, I was working with children at risk of getting HIV. Um, and so I, I was doing that, except the first job that opened at the Duke Global Health Institute was kind of a dream job for someone like me, opened up in children's surgery. And I loved it because it was a new part of the field in children's health. It was very scrappy. So the people who were in there were just passionate. Uh, so I fit in, I felt, you know, doing that. But it was also a health equity issue, not only an equity issue, but an innovation issue, because there's there's almost a stopgap of when you say surgery and an automatic answer of, oh, that's too uh, hard to do and it's too expensive. And as an epidemiologist, I wanted to say, actually, it's, it's not as expensive as you think. And you get a really big bang for your buck for the families, but also the children and the societies. So I just found it was a natural extension of what I wanted to do with a great group of collaborators. So we started working in Somaliland and on children who needed surgical care, asking questions like, where are they? Did they get to care? Um, and the real important questions of if they didn't get to care, why? And we found the two big uh, reasons were poverty and geography, but the biggest reason was poverty. We also found that there were a subgroup of families within the country that were going into poverty and never coming back out of it. And we thought we see that here in the States. It's called a poverty trajectory. It's like a U-shaped curve where the slope up is too slippery to climb out. And the ones that were getting stuck were ones with the children uh, that had a surgical need in their home. 
And we accounted for income. We accounted for other kiddos that they had to feed, which I thought would be the markers of getting stuck in poverty. But it was a kid who needed surgery. Mm. So that's what took us to the UN to when in 2019, they started having discussions on universal health coverage, basically what is covered under those packages. And, you know, it's, it's the traditional things you want covered, like primary care and vaccines. But we were there to say, gosh, you really need to also include surgery because that's what's impoverishing children. Yeah. How many people in the world don't have access to health care? You've got a statistic yeah. in your book, which staggered me. It, yes, and I start out that chapter with the with the number because it was staggering to me as well. It's five billion. That's almost half of the world's population. Yes, and that was actually estimated. Well, a bit at the more than half. That's had, more than half, isn't it? How how many have we got? About nine or ten billion. We have eight now, but yep. the five yep. billion number was when we had seven. So it was it was well over half. And I get when I teach this in class uh, to the students, I always get. Whoa, whoa, whoa. There's no way. And if you look at the number of people who don't have access to just a surgeon, that, you know, it's not as high of a number, so it makes sense, but that number is defined on equity. And so it's defined as the number of people who don't have access to care that doesn't, surgical care that doesn't bankrupt them, that isn't hard to get to. So if it's more than two hours away, that's really hard. Um, and that is safe. And you know, so safe, timely, and affordable are the three metrics. And I think that's a way that we can define health and equity because it's what we want for our children, isn't it? We'd want it to be safe. We don't want it to bankrupt the rest of the family and we want it to be uh, timely. And so why wouldn't we do that for the rest of the world? So in that metric, it's 5 billion. Yes, we clearly need to change the system, he says, as a humble radio interviewer. You write, yes. about, a, you, you, you write about a trickle-up economy. Now, I love this. This, this intrigued me. What is a trickle-up economy, and why, in your view, do we need one? I love this term. Um, I mean, we're here in America where trickle-down is the uh, – it feels like we come out of the woo hearing that. In New Zealand as well. In, oh, in sure. New Zealand as well. We've been, we've been fed this trickle-down nonsense for about 30 years, and it hasn't worked. It, <laughs> it hasn't has worked not worked. No, it's like sticking $100 in Jeff Bezos' uh, mailbox and hoping it, hoping it gets to Burundi, which it will not. So the trickle-up concept for me is it goes back to the Good Samaritan story on what the whole story is centered on. You know, it's centered on the man who is in need, um, and Jesus kept, keeps pointing to that. And so if he's centered on the margins, then how can we do that from an economic standpoint, you know, big picture, little picture for sure on the ground, but how do we do it as a big picture society? So if we start with the margins, we start with the poor. Um, in my work, we see time and time again that there's only a select group of families who can access health care. Those are the ones that could afford it and live close to it. And so the ones that are not in data or are not in the science are the margins. So why not start there and work our way up since that's the problem? Um, from a health standpoint, it makes societal sense to actually start with the margins. There's good uh, literature and science showing that there's a one to 10 bang for your buck if you start and you improve surgical care. And I use that as an example because that's what I do. But for every dollar you put in to strengthen that system, you get a 10 times fold output from an economic standpoint because those people go on to live thri thriving lives. 
So I just think it makes sense from a faith perspective and an economic perspective to focus on equity. Yeah, in the few moments we've got, 10 minutes or so we've got left, um, I want to ask you about climate change. You currently, at the time you were writing the book, I think you say you currently then were working in the Horn of Africa. How is climate change affecting the region? Because you're seeing this firsthand. Yes, and I wanted to put something like that because the the threats and harassment I got on the Facebook page as a friendly neighbor epidemiologist was always when I talked about these hot topic buttons of systemic racism, structural violence, climate change, which to me seems, I think if we hold those type of buzzwords up to the sky, they actually reflect heaven because it's an equity issue. So I wanted to write on those hot topic buttons in a way that hopefully is not threatening, but challenging, you know, or maybe you can talk about it at the Thanksgiving table or challenge our views to be more of a neighbor when it comes to climate change, I still work in the Horn of Africa um, and and just throughout Eastern Africa. They are entering their seventh failed rainy season right now. It, they're agrarian societies, and so it means that they feed their families and they make money based on livestock and camels. And so with climate change, you're just seeing very rapid droughts happen where these uh, families are having to move. And then they have to move again. And then you have to move. And that's really hard on a family stability-wise, emotionally, but also financially. So climate change, to me, is a faith issue. Of, it's a modern day not walking by, basically. It's communities that are on the side of the road and choosing not to walk by. So I think we need to take it seriously, not only in how we vote, but in also um, you know, with how we talk about it. How food insecure, if I can use that term, how food insecure are we in the world today? Yes, I love this question because if we go 30,000 feet up, it's the question of the viewpoints that we have around us. You know, if, if we're looking at the bubbles around us, if you're like me, most of us have enough food, most of us have enough money, we have cars and insurance, even though they probably don't cover a whole lot <laughs> if you're here in the States. Um, but it can look like what's normal for me is normal for everybody else. And so I have a chapter on trying to debunk that a little bit. So we see reality of the world and then we can act like neighbors. With food insecurity, if you have enough food to feed your family, not over, not only in, definitely not in abundance, but just to feed, you are a minority because the rest of the world has some sort of food insecurity because of the poverty and because of the increase in poverty. This also goes back to climate change with being able to feed your family in agrarian societies. So again, I think it's a faith issue when we can get the story right. How did the pandemic affect global supply chains? Mm. It disrupted everything. And we all saw that. We joked about toilet paper at the beginning. It's funny you should mention that. It's funny you should mention that. There's an ongoing story about New Zealand supermarkets, the, the, the first and major, you would think that when we're all locked down, because we went through a quite stringent lockdown in New Zealand in 2020, right. 2021, you would think the first thing that would disappear off supermarket shelves was food. No, it wasn't. It was toilet paper. They're probably listening to us Americans because that's what we did here. <laughs> it was almost yeah. in a frenzy of do we need to and then everybody buys just in case. <laughs> yes. I mean, you'd walk into the supermarkets and there'd be plenty of food, but no toilet paper. No, you're <laughs> 
is a hoarding issue. <laughs> so we, you know, we joke about that. Um, that was one of the reasons why I started my Facebook page to answer questions <laughs> like that. Of, you know, flatten the curve means this and leave toilet paper for those that need it. <laughs> Share with your neighbors. Um, but back to the the global chain, you know, I don't, I think there's a misconception, especially in the evangelical kind of church world, that who we vote for matters, that it, it can trickle down to more than just who we vote for. So when that, that definitely affected climate change, because in 2016, we pulled out of the Paris Accord, but also in the pandemic, the, the worst of the pandemic kept just going on. I mean, it was relentless. Um, we had the playbook for it not to be as bad as it was, by the way, and it just wasn't followed globally. But those um, the supply chains for bread and for maize, and you definitely look at that in uh, in Egypt, that needs to reach Somaliland, places like that. And it couldn't because it was disrupted due to the pandemic or just due to hoarding. So, yeah, I think it's all connected. And you were there because one of the things you write in your book is one of the hardest parts of being an epidemiologist in early 2020 was seeing the storm coming. Now, I must ask you before we close, how did you personally see the storm coming? Well, it, and I also want to make sure that people know this is not a COVID book because I could not write for 200 pages about that. It's just too raw, <laughs> I think, to talk about it. I The storm coming means that when an epidemic would happen or the pandemic, it it is something that we as epidemiologists and public health experts are trained for. So it, it didn't catch any of us by surprise. So to see that storm on a radar, almost like a hurricane coming we could see what was about to happen, but we also knew what you need to put in place. Like, how do you board up your home, if you will, to keep you and your family safe during a pandemic? How did the friendly neighbor epidemiologist, I'm going to have trouble saying this word, epidemiologist page come about? Yes, that's a great word, by the way, to throw in at the Thanksgiving table if you need to. <laughs> Seven syllables. <laughs> I'm just going to go and say to my family after this interview, I've just interviewed the most wonderful epidemiologists and wait that's for right. the expression of, of blankness on their face. <laughs> well, thank you for that. And yes, to the blankness. <laughs> what are they? You know, when, when Wuhan started happening and we could kind of see, I say we as epidemi epidemiologists, what was about to happen, I, I started just getting questions from friends and family about flatten the curve. What does a lockdown look like? How do I keep my kids safe? Because it, I, heard, I mean, that time was very scary. And so I tend to be over friendly at times and decided why not just be efficient and start a Facebook page named it friendly because I'm very chatty and then neighbor because of the Good Samaritan story that this would require us to really take care of our neighbors, especially global ones. And uh, so I started it. And as a person of faith, I would weave in um, how to do this from a faith perspective, how to help pastors. And that's really when you saw it go viral. Yes. As an epidemiologist, how did the world cope with COVID, in your opinion? Oh, gosh. And that's well, a huge we... question, or probably an answerable question, but what was your perception of how governments around the world and people around the world responded? Well, yeah. And there were some countries who did did it marvelously. They put in place what they should. They followed the codes and the rules and uh, the playbook. Those countries by and large are more, they were more used to being non-individualistic. And so you take care of one another is more of a neighborly type of country. 
healthcare systems were a little bit more prepared as well. The individualistic countries and the leaders of those countries uh, fared the worst. And because it was this weird sense of like taking away freedoms that were never taken away. And I would write extensively that actually true freedom is laying down your life for your uh, your friend. You know, I'd go on the words of Jesus and talk about it from a faith perspective, but those fared the worst were the individual countries. You mentioned the playbook. Who, who writes Who writes a playbook for a pandemic? Who decides what countries could or should or might do? Yeah, well, the WHO, the CDC, I mean, we've worked for years on having those playbooks together. And so this, and really people have been talking about the world's great pandemic for a long time. So it's not like it surprised us, but it's just tried and true experts looking at things like Ebola, uh, looking at SARS, you know, those that uh, epidemics that could have become pandemic and we've effectively squashed, those were followed by the playbooks definitely more than, than COVID. Well, Emily, we're just about out of time. Sadly, we could talk on and on on. One more question, because I think you have a section in your book on social media, if I remember rightly, and you you say unknown is the new fame. Why, this intrigued me, why is unknown the new fame? I am hoping that that will become true because <laughs> it seems like even kids in school, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's an, it's an influencer or a YouTuber, which is fine in and of itself if you use it for good. Uh, the reason I put that in there is there are a lot of ways to be a neighbor that will go unseen. And if we try to center our lives on being a neighbor for the sake of getting likes and clicks and shares and fame, it's just the upside down way of doing it. Whether uh, the other way of doing it is just doing the small things that we can in our own way, we can do it all, but we could probably do something regardless if anybody ever knows. Uh, so that I wanted to write a chapter on someone who taught me that the most in Honduras of taking care of a 20 year old person who was crying, <laughs> which was me. There we are. Emily Smith, we haven't had time to talk. I wanted to ask you about some of the people. Have we got time? We might have. We've got seven minutes. I wanted to ask you, this interview keeps getting longer by the minute. I wanted to ask you, who are some of the people you mentioned in the book who influenced you the most? Yes. You know, I start out the book talking about somebody who taught me neighboring and centering probably more than anybody else. The book is in part dedicated to her. It's Dr. Edna Adon Ismail. She is my main partner in Somali Land, but as a fresh master student, you know, in my 20s, I had heard about her and her work. She's very well known in the global health space. And when she retired, she took out her entire pension and went back to her country in Somali Land and built a hospital. And her story is just depth of love and wisdom. So I, we can't do it justice even in an hour. But she taught me what it means to do it for no fame and just doing it for the good of your neighbor at great cost. Um, the other person who the book is dedicated to is Dr. Paul Farmer, which any of us in global health equity type work certainly know. I mean, he is the legend of a legend. And I knew about him and I had a chance to meet him again in my master's program, but then do some work in the global surgery field where our orbits, our research orbits became very much intertwined. Um, I was, the book is, it has an entire chapter on how he taught me the word solidarity and the reasons why. So he's very, very dear. Um, but then it's people like my children, you know, how, and my students, how do you 
how do you neighbor just on a normal Tuesday when everybody is hungry for dinner? <laughs> and how do you teach that to the next generation? Mm. Uh, the other harder chapters that I were, I think the hardest outside of the cost, the more personal chapters for me was Dr. Khan, who was a, he's the Anthony, he's who I called Anthony Fauci of Africa, who during the Ebola epidemic, he got very sick. Um, and ended up succumbing to the disease, he was not medevaced and he was not given uh, one of the experimental drugs at the time. But at that same time, about two weeks before, two other physicians got very sick with Ebola um, in the same continent, but they were medevaced out of the country and given the experimental drug and lived. And so the question there is who is worthy of getting supportive care or who's worthy of getting healthcare systems or money or not, I think is a question we all need to wrestle with. I would answer it. We all are. Yeah. Mm. Me too. Yep. Me too. We all are, aren't we? Emily Smith, Dr. Emily Smith, there we are. The new book from Zondervan in the States is called The Science of the Good Samaritan, Thinking Bigger About Loving Our Neighbours. It is thought-provoking. It really is, and fascinating, and there's so much in it, Emily, you know, to chew over. Even if you're of a, a more non-scientific bent, as I am, you will still find it absolutely fascinating. And uh, so thank you, Emily, for joining us. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Emily, thank you so much. Thank you. This was lovely. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com. <laughs>